Vincent, there you go. It's all good. <laughs> G'day, everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, if, you want, if you turn back your Bibles to the Old Testament reading, we're going to look at Jeremiah 30 and 31. So we only read a little bit from 31. We're going to look at 30 and 31. You'll want your um, uh, sermon outline as well. And you can get a little bit of an insight into what my family is a bit excited about at the moment. If you look at the heading on there, for those with eyes to see, there's a movie coming out in December that Sam really wants to see. And he's made me watch all the prequels. Uh, and we're up to A New Hope. And so I called this sermon A New Hope. So there you go. But it's, it's uh, rather fitting. I really wanted to call it Part 4, but I thought that was just a little bit too clever by heart. But anyway, uh, let those, for those who've never seen Star Wars, you, you've got no idea what I was just talking about. But anyway... It doesn't help you anyway. Anyway, okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you in particular for the Old Testament. We thank you for the excitement we feel when we see the way that you have been at work right throughout history and all your plans have been pointing forward to Jesus and find their fulfilment in him. Uh, And we thank you that as we look at Jeremiah, it's not just a historical document, but it speaks to us today because we are people who know Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you will speak to us through this part of your word tonight. And in particular, we pray that we will learn the lessons you want us to learn. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I think almost universally, no one likes being the bearer of bad news. uh, Because frankly, what often happens is when you're the person who brings the bad news, people shoot the messenger. And people don't like you because you're the one who shared the bad news with them. Uh, At the very least, the reality is, sadly... People just sort of ignore the person who shares unpleasant truths with them. Uh, People on the whole would much rather be told comforting lies than unpleasant truths. That's just the reality of it. Someone, as we've been looking at Jeremiah, sent me an email during the week. If we put it up on the screen. Thanks, Alex. Are you the person there? We got it. There it is. It's not on there. Oh, there it's there. How does that happen? How does it go there and then slowly there? Anyway. Uh, So they sent me this and they thought this was true of Jeremiah. There's Jeremiah sitting under the unpleasant truths table. And there's a big line of happy people going for the comforting lies. And isn't that right? Isn't that the way it is? Uh, People just sort of think, I don't want to know the truth if it's not nice. I'd much rather someone tell me a comforting lie. And that was certainly Jeremiah's experience. And we've been looking at Jeremiah now for a few weeks. We can uh, put that down. Thanks, Alex. Uh, And in many ways, chapters 1 to 29 that we've looked at so far has been almost universally bad news. Not for us, because we know God's answer to the bad news, but for them... It was almost universally bad news. So, so Jeremiah came and he gave them this message. You have turned away from God, the God who saved you, the God who has shown you grace and mercy. You've turned away from him to worship idols. You, you've turned your back on his law. And despite warning after warning, you've refused to turn back. And so now God's judgment is coming. And so we saw last week that God's judgment had come through the Babylonians and they'd come and they'd defeated Jerusalem they'd taken all their precious things from the temple and they had taken all their sort of uh, educated people the king and all the people associated with him off to captivity in Babylon so the judgment had come and so Jeremiah's job was a pretty awful job his job was before it happened to say this is what's going to happen and then after it happened to sort of say I told you that was going to happen not a very nice job for anyone to do and Jeremiah wasn't one of those people who would have quite liked that you know how there are some people who quite like being that person well that wasn't Jeremiah and if you've been reading along you would have come across those passages where Jeremiah basically goes why me God you know why do I have to do this 
Why can't you get some other poor person to do it? You, you know, that sort of idea. And so Jeremiah must have loved it when God gave him this prophecy that we'll get tonight, chapter 30 and 31, because there's been hints of good news all through up until now, but this is the good news. This is God saying, this is what I'm going to do after the judgment. And that's why these chapters famously, they're famous chapters, they get called the book of hope or the book of consolation, because that's what they are. And the heart of God's good news was this. This was sort of the heart of it. It was that God's judgment was not going to last forever. That was the heart of it. God has not abandoned his people. God had not forgotten the promises he'd made to Abraham and Moses and David, the rest of the Old Testament. God would still keep those promises despite what his people had done. And so in these chapters, what God does, he sort of goes through the different promises and shows now how he's going to bring them about despite the sin of his people. So if you look on your outline, look under the heading there, the book of hope on the first column, and you'll see I've put sort of six mini headings there or subheadings, and they're all related to promises that God had made in the Old Testament. And the first one is about the land. So remember how God had promised them the land? It was their place where they met with God and centered on the temple in Jerusalem. Well, God said, I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. So look at chapter 30, verse 3 says, for the days are certainly coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, the Lord's declaration, I will restore them to the land I gave to their ancestors and they will possess it. So there it was, the promise was you will get the land back, you'll get to go back to the land. But more than that, the land was always meant to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It was God sort of wasn't just saying, I'm going to return you to the land and then just do your best. It's been destroyed, but you can cope, that sort of idea. God said, no, 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 I am going to take you back and I'm going to restore it again. I'm going to rebuild all the cities. So look there at verse 18, for instance. It says, this is what the Lord says. I will certainly restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and show compassion on his dwellings. Every city will be rebuilt on its mound. Every citadel will stand on its proper site. So he said, you're not just going to go back to the land. I'm going to bless you in the land. I'm going to rebuild all these things that have been destroyed. But God wasn't just going to do that. You see, God also knew that they hated the fact that these Babylonians were oppressing them. And God said, well, I am going to make it so that no one ever oppresses you ever again. So look at chapter 30, verse 8. He says, on that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke from your neck and tear off your change so strangers will never again enslave him. So he's going to judge their enemies, the Babylonians, for what they'd done to God's people, and never again were they going to be oppressed and ruled over by foreign powers. So instead... What was God going to do? He was going to put their king back in charge. So look at verse 9. It says, they will serve the Lord their God and I will raise up David their king for them. Obviously not David. David was in his grave. But the descendant of David who he'd promised all those years before. See, for someone who knows their Old Testament, someone who's done our introduction to the Bible course, I don't know where you're up to, the people doing intro to the Bible. Where are you up to at the moment, Thomas? Oh, you're not even up to that point. Anyway, but for someone who's finished the introduction to the Bible course and knows their Old Testament, you can see how God is picking up on all the promises he has made in the past. 
He's saying the promises of blessing, the the promises of land, the promises of an eternal king, I'm going to keep them. And underpinning that all and the pulling together of all of that, God was promising to restore his relationship with them. That's what it was all about. So look with me at verse 22. He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Or chapter 31, verse 1. At that time, this is the Lord's declaration, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they will be my people. See, it's this wonderful picture of things being returned to how they were always meant to be. It's actually like a return to Eden where Adam and Eve lived with God and there was nothing between them. It's a return to how it was meant to be for Israel where there is nothing separating them, where God is their God and they are God's people. God dwells with them and blesses them And they obey God and live for him and experience all the blessings he had to offer. And it sounds wonderful. It's a wonderful picture. But there was an obvious problem. This is one of my non-rhetorical questions. What's the problem with that promise? Can you see what it might be? What's the problem? Yeah, their sin. How long till they messed it up again? God has done this for them before. And they mess it up every time. Uh, God brings them out of slavery. God gives them the promised land, says, keep my law. What do they do? There's Baal. Let's go worship him. And then God says, all right, I'll forgive you. And then they go, thank you, God. Oh, there's Baal. Let's go worship him. I'll forgive you. And they go, oh, thank you, God. Let's live in the land. Oh, there's Baal. Let's go. It's, it's, a, it's like if you read the Old Testament, it gets very repetitive. The history of Israel, because it's the same thing on sort of, continuous loop over and over it's like when your cd or your dvd skips and goes back i think i've seen this scene before that's because you have well that's the story of the old testament you see and the problem was never with god it was always with the people they were sinful so this sounded great but a wise israelite would have said it wouldn't last it can't last it just won't last except this time god said i'm going to do something more And so that brings us to chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. So turn over there now. That was our reading before. And this is just one of those key passages of the Old Testament you need to know to understand your Bible. It's good to know the whole Bible, but there are certain passages you need to know to understand your Bible. You need to know Genesis 1 to 3. You need to know Exodus 19. You need to know 2 Samuel 7. Well, Jeremiah 31 is one of those need-to-know passages you just have to understand it to understand the bible that's how important it is because here god says i'm going to fix the problem once and for all i'm going to make a new covenant with you and this time it will last because i'm doing something different because what i'm going to do is i'm going to get in there and i'm going to deal with the heart of the problem and what was the heart of the problem their sinful hearts so come with me now let's look at this great little passage chapter 31 verse 31 Look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the whole Bible is about God and his covenants. Covenants are like a solemn promise that God made with his people. And here is God saying, this one, this time, is not going to be same old, same old. This time I'm starting something new. So let's go on, verse 32, he says, This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke even though I had married them. So he's talking about the covenant with Moses, about the ten, what we call the Ten Commandments, the law. 
And despite God's incredible grace in saving them and taking them to be his people and making this covenant with them, they refused to keep their side of the covenant. They committed adultery, is what God said. He was faithful to them, they weren't faithful to him. He said, have no other gods but me, they said, let's worship Baal as well. He said, love your neighbour as yourself, they said, where are some poor people who we can oppress? That was the life of Israel. So what was going to be different this time? Was God going to make his law easier? That sounds a good solution, doesn't it? To, if you want people to follow your law, God, make it easier. Is that what he was going to do? Was he going to lower his moral standards in the new covenant? You know, that, that being faithful to one husband or one wife for life bit, that's just too hard in the real world. Just be faithful to the one you're with at the moment. Something like that, you know, or that, that bearing false testimony bit. Hadn't quite realised just how annoying most human beings were going to be. You know, so I'll let you gossip because who, could, who wouldn't gossip about these people? You know, that sort of idea. That, that tithing idea, I mean, 10%. What was I thinking? That's unrealistic. Maybe 2%, 1.5, 0.1 of a percent, maybe. You know, no other gods besides me. That's too hard. As long as I'm your number one, you can have other gods. Is that what God was going to do? You know, was that what was new? God was going to make this easier. No. What was new about this new covenant wasn't that God would change his standards and his laws. God does not change his standards. What was new was this time he would look after both sides of the agreement, both sides of the covenant. Because he knew they couldn't keep his law, so this time he was going to work in them to enable them to keep it. Which brings us to the key verse. Look at verse 33. He says, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. See, this time, God wasn't going to sort of put it on tablets of stone to hang on the wall and look at and resent and say, how could I ever keep that? Now he's saying, this time I'm going to work in your hearts so that you will just naturally follow my law. And even more importantly than that, you will see my law not as some onerous obligation, not as some limitation on your freedom. You will see my law as something you want to keep for your own good and for your own benefit. I will give you a heart that doesn't just know how to live for me, but that wants to live for me. And that's the point of verse 34 there. Look at verse 34 where it says, No longer will one teach his neighbour or his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they'll all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. Some people read that and say, so does that mean the new covenant, you shouldn't have preachers, you shouldn't have people sharing the gospel with other people? No, that's not what it's talking about. What he's saying is there will not be a need in the new covenant people of God for Jeremiah's anymore. Because it was always in the Old Testament, in the people of God, there was always faithful people and unfaithful people. And so there were the faithful people in every age, like Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah, who were faithful to God, but then there were all the others saying, I don't care. And those guys had to call those guys to know God all the time. God is saying, in the new covenant, you won't need to do that because everyone who is a part of the new covenant people of God will know me. No one will have to tell them, rebuke them to get them to know me. Which brings us to the last part of verse 34 there, look with me, where he says, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. That's the most important bit, isn't it? The thing underlying this new covenant and actually overarching it all is God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness. 
the thing that was causing the problem, the thing that was standing between them and God, their sin, it was dealt with. Not because they dealt with it, but because God had dealt with it by forgiving them for everything and working in them to enable them to keep his law from now on. I talked at the start about how Jeremiah had to share a lot of bad news and he had to sort of be talked into sharing it. I don't think God needed to talk him into sharing these chapters. This one he was happy to share because this is the greatest news any prophet in the Old Testament had ever been given. And so this was their hope. As they were sitting there in, in uh, Babylon for 70 years, they said, one day God's going to take us back. That's what we're looking forward to. And so when God opened up the way, when he killed off Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Persians came in and defeated the Babylonians and said, you can now go back, Israelites, go back and rebuild your cities, go back and rebuild your temple. They thought, this is it. The prophecy of God has been fulfilled. But then very quickly they worked out, if this is it then Jeremiah was a liar, or at worst, a chronic exaggerator. Because they went back and most of their cities didn't get rebuilt. And they went back and they remained small and insignificant. And the temple they rebuilt, well, later on the Old Testament says, the old men who had seen the old temple that was destroyed cried when they built the new temple because it was so second grade compared to what they had before. And worst of all, they just kept sinning and often they didn't want to keep God's law and often they thought they knew better but they just kept sinning even when they really tried and they needed more prophets to come to rebuke them so either Jeremiah was a liar or they were still waiting for the new covenant to come in a sense even though they were back there in the land they were still in exile and so they waited and they waited and they waited. If you think Christmas is a long time to wait, they waited 500 years. And then came Jesus, the one who was descended from David, the one who kept talking about forgiveness of sins. Have you ever noticed how, as you read the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're reading Luke at the moment in Gospel teams, have you noticed how often they stress the fact that Jesus is connected to the Old Testament? You ever noticed that? I hope you have or you've never read the Gospels. So if, you, if you've never noticed it, go and read the Gospels for the first time. But you know how they always say, when they say, who is Jesus? They say, descended from David. Jesus did this. All these things were fulfilled among you. Jesus, as it is said in the prophets. You know how they say that over and over and over again. It becomes clear how Jesus is the one who brings the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament promised. You know, for me, that is the biggest reason, humanly speaking, that I'm a Christian. That is the biggest reason, humanly speaking, I know that it was God at work in me is the reason I'm a Christian, but humanly speaking, that is the biggest reason I'm a Christian. As I grappled with the Bible as a first-year university student in my scepticism and really didn't want it to be true because I knew what it would mean for how I'd have to live my life, I just could not get around the fact that all these things in the Old Testament, it was the Old Testament that convinced me of the truth of the gospel. I could not get around the fact that all of these things written over a period of, even the most sceptical person has to admit, a period of 800 years at least, that all of these things written by different authors who never knew each other, who never even lived at the same time, all came together and found their fulfilment in Jesus. And in the end, I decided that it would actually take a greater suspension of my disbelief, if you like, to say 
that all these guys managed to put together this con job, the greatest con job in history, it would take more of a suspension of my faculties to believe that than it would to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And it was that fact that I saw the way passages like this were fulfilled in the New Testament that made me decide Jesus is who he says he is and he is the Lord. And if you are a sceptic, then I challenge you to grapple with that as you read the Bible. But back to the point here. The point is when Jesus came, he did not just claim to be a prophet. He didn't just say, I'm like Jeremiah. I'm like Elijah. He said, no, no, no. I am the one all the prophets were talking about. I am the fulfillment of every promise God has ever made. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 on your outline. Have a look there. It says, for every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus. And one of the most fundamental of those promises was that Jesus established this new covenant between God and his people. That's why the second half of the Bible is called the New Testament. That's why it has that name, because this is the testament of the new covenant. That's what it is. Now, what did that mean, that Jesus brought the new covenant? What are the marks of the new covenant? We'll have a look there in your outline. I've put four headings, I think. The first is forgiveness. The greatest blessing of the new covenant is the forgiveness of sins, like Jeremiah promised. And the thing is, Jeremiah could never have guessed how amazing the forgiveness Jesus would bring would actually be. I think Jeremiah had in his mind that God would sort of keep forgiving his people every year as they brought their sacrifices to the temple. He had no concept that actually what God would do was send his own son to die for the sins of humanity once and for all. And we saw that in the New Testament reading from before. We're going to think about it as we have the Lord's Supper later on. But you remember we read about the Last Supper when Jesus said, look in your outline, Luke 22 verse 20. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant established how? By my blood. It is shed for you. So in his death, Jesus was paying the price for our sin, for our forgiveness and opening the way up to God, starting the new covenant. But there was a big surprise about this new covenant and that was it wasn't just for the Jews. God's forgiveness was for all people, Jew and Gentile. And I think the vast majority of us should be very thankful for that. And this has been hinted at in the Old Testament, but now it became clear. The new covenant is first for the Jew. Don't ever forget that. Fulfilling God's promises to his people, inviting them to come and follow their king. That's why we need to keep sharing the gospel with Jewish people. So they'll come to know their Messiah. But then Jesus says, I'm opening up the doors of the new covenant people of God for everyone. And I don't care where you are from and I don't care what your background is, you are welcome. And so my prayer for you today is that you have found that forgiveness and that you have become a part of the new covenant people of God by trusting in Jesus. Then the third mark of the new covenant, look there on your outline again. It was that just like Jeremiah had promised, Jesus did something about our sinful hearts. Jesus said, I'm not just going to forgive you. I'm going to do something about your sinful heart. Yes, he forgives us by his death, but he also works in us to change us and help us to live God's way. But in many ways, again, what Jesus eventually gave us was bigger and better than even what Jeremiah had ever envisaged. 
Because Jesus said, I'm not just going to write my law on your hearts. I'm going to come and live in your hearts. I'm amazed, as Christians, the longer you're a Christian, the more we take for granted the most mind-blowing truths about God. But do you find this, on the one hand, a slightly scary thing, but on the one hand, quite incredible. God is in you. The God of the universe is in your heart, is living inside you and working in you to change you. Look at what Jesus says in John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. And we, that's his father, God the father and he, we will come to him and make our home with him. Isn't that incredible? God the father God the Son, if you are a Christian, that's what you have. You have the Spirit of God in you, who works in you to change you and help you put off sin and live God's way. But, my last point, you might be thinking a bit like the Jews when they got back to the land, this can't be all of it. And you look around you at the new covenant people of God here, and you look around and say, really? No disrespect, but really, this, this is the fulfilment of all God's promises and you think yeah, yeah I know I've been forgiven but I still sin and even though I've just been reminded of how wonderful God's grace is I will walk out of here tonight and I will sin before I've even got home I'll have sinned at least in thought I don't think I'm any worse than you and I know I have the spirit of God in me God himself lives in me and I see his work I, I want to live for God I want to know his word I want to live by it but sometimes I don't and I have this tension in me where, where I don't do what I want to do and then I do what I don't want to do all the time and, I, and sometimes I don't actually want to do it. And this world, I look around and it's still broken and it's still groaning and that is all true. That is the Christian experience and that is because, yes, Jesus has done everything to bring about his forgiveness, to bring about the new covenant in his death and in his resurrection and in giving us his spirit. But Jesus also says the best is yet to come. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, when he returns and puts an end to sin and pain and suffering once and for all, when he returns and this world is burnt away and he brings a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, that is when we will live with God forever and he will be our God and we will be his people. And that is the certain hope that we look forward to as Christians. That is why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? We pray, your kingdom come. Jesus return. That's why we pray, your will be done on earth as in heaven. We're not praying there that our world will get better and that things, our government will reform things and make Christian laws. That's not what you're praying when you pray the Lord's Prayer. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're praying, Jesus, come back. And bring about your new covenant in its totality, once and for all. That's why we pray it. That is our hope as Christians and that is what is still to come. So our response to Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the new covenant. If you are someone who trusts in Jesus, your response is very, very simple. Give thanks to God that you've been included, that you have forgiveness, that you have the gift of his spirit. If you are not someone who trusts in Jesus, your response is very simple. Do it tonight. Trust in Jesus and find the forgiveness he offers. But then secondly, 
Our second response, pray that prayer. Come Lord Jesus and persevere whatever happens. Keep trusting Jesus as we wait for the day when he returns. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful way that Jesus fulfills all your promises. And Father, we thank you that in him we are a part of your new covenant people and we have forgiveness of sins and we have your spirit at work in us. But Father, we know that our world is still broken and we still struggle with sin. So more than anything, we pray, come Lord Jesus and bring about your kingdom once and for all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.